I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You're listening to Chosen Family. It's a podcast. It's a live Facebook thing. It's a way of life. And it's produced and presented by the amazing people at FI. I'm Trana Winter. I'm Thomas LeBlanc. And, and this, this is, is our show. Welcome to episode four of Chosen Family. Hey, Thomas. Hey, Trana. Happy Tuesday. Happy, hot, <laughs> sweaty, disgusting Tuesday. It's, I can't believe it's like, it feels like it's 40 degrees outside, but it's fall. It's supposed to be fall. I you, can't do with this. It. No, it's been like a few days and I've just locked myself up in air conditioning and I've basically been watching Lady Gaga's Five Foot Two documentary <laughs> on a loop. Like every queer person in the world this weekend. I know. It's the, yeah. it's the talk of the community. <laughs> No one can escape this but five you, foot two you, monster. You have a pretty interesting Gaga origin story, Jenna. Well, I mean, that's where we should start. Let's yeah. before we delve into the documentary, <laughs> and there's a lot to talk about. We need to establish where we stand, yeah, sort on of, Gaga. on Gaga. So I was like obsessed immediately, pretty much when she first from came Just out. Dance, uh, yeah, and Poker okay. Face, and um, I just loved her. And Halloween 2009, um, right. I dressed up as her. I mean, it's embarrassing to look back on those pictures. Not a great outfit. <laughs> but we do look alike anyway. Um, so I dressed up as her. And it was really the first time since I was a very young kid that I really allowed myself to look female. And I remember just looking in the mirror and seeing myself. And it was really like it was really like seeing myself for the first time. So just to be clear, was that before you came out as trans? Yeah, it okay. was. Okay. Um, and... But it was this major realization. There was something really powerful in that moment. It was the first time that I ever like saw myself was as that beautiful. Before Born This Way? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because Born This Way is basically about... It was right it. when Bad Romance came out. Yeah. Um, it's her best moment. Yeah, it was. And so, yeah, I was just obsessed with her. And then I kind of lost interest. I think, for me, and this might sound crazy, what sort of started to ruin things for me with Gaga. First, I mean, she started taking everything way too seriously. But it was that hideous Born This Way album cover with that motorcycle. Right, motorcycle yeah. I'm like, fuck this shit. <laughs> this is the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life. She just automatically lost all credibility for me. But at that point, you had seen her live. Because I think we were at the same concert, the fake yeah. Monster Ball. Or the, 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 the yeah, Monster Ball. The Monster Ball. Yeah. <laughs> it's always a ball <laughs> with Lady Gaga. Always a ball. Um, yeah, I've seen her five times. I remember being at that concert. I, it's a funny thing because I went with my dad, uh, who's born in 1959. So, you know, not necessarily like a Gaga target. Right. And he bought tickets for his wife, me and him. And we all went to the show and he had such a blast. But you have to understand that normally my father only listens to prog rock from the 70s <laughs> and Alanis. And oh. these, yeah, these are the only... That's hilarious. Yeah, and then Gaga. He sort of... Gaga is like the most recent things he would listen to. Yeah. And to see my father jump on telephone and poker face and all the songs from the fame monster was 
an incredible experience. That is amazing. Yeah. I feel like she is, you know, she is the icon of our time. I feel like beyond Rihanna, Katy Perry, um, she is the icon, regardless of success, you know, because her, to me, an icon is someone who affects some kind of change or some kind of shift her, in the culture. Her, But her talent as a songwriter, as a performer, as a vocalist, you know, it's 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 at, at this point, it's almost tired to mention it. But she is so freaking talented. I know. And it's easy to forget that. And I think one of the best scenes in the documentary is the Bad Romance performance at the piano at Tony Bennett's birthday party. Goosebumps. It was incredible and the documentary because again like i you know i lost interest along the way i i stopped feeling a connection no you didn't you didn't like art pop and no i was really over art pop even more over joanne i thought perfect illusion was a perfect pile of shit um but um this documentary was really a reminder of like how magical she is she is special her grandmother says it you know (laughs) and that scene is hilarious Because Joanne, for those who don't know, I mean, of course you know, Joanne was Lady Gaga's aunt who passed away before Gaga was born. Way before Gaga. Way before. 40, I mean, she's been passed for 40 years now. And Gaga plays the title track of the album for her grandmother. On her phone. On her phone. (laughs) And Lady Gaga gets more emotional during the listening than her grandmother does. And then at the end of this moment, Lady Gaga's grandmother, you know, kind of takes her in her arms and says... Don't be so maudlin about all of this. It was 40 years ago. Um, it's a but great, that, hilarious but that, but moment. that moment was just like, really? We had to go... Because if you remember when that record came out last year, when Joanne came out and Gaga was wearing that big uh, pink hat and sort of performing on SNL, it was before the Super Bowl. And she was always talking about that and Like, it was yes. a defining experience of her life. And I, I do believe that probably... You know how family mythologies are built? You know, someone in the family dies or something happens in the family and people keep talking about it for yes. years. So I had this sense that, like, that was the situation with Joanne. But then that scene with the grandmother, it's it's really sad that yeah. she died. But I feel that everybody in the family kind of moved on. And Well, you have to, yeah. you know. And there's this whole running idea of what you hold on to mm-hmm. from your past, what you take with you into your future. And this... You know, she's clearly on some kind of quest for authenticity. Like that word comes up many times in the documentary. And it's hard to say what's real or not with her because at the time of the fame monster and born this way when she was wearing, you know, the, the crazy outfits and just so visually flamboyant. She was so adamant at that time that that was the real her, mm-hmm. that there was exactly. no behind the curtain. No Stephanie. Exactly. In, in the documentary, it's almost more about Stephanie than about Gaga. Exactly. But it feels like all of that, like, I don't want to say that it was all a lie. I think it's just a question of evolving. And this is where she's at in her life. And when you do get closer to authenticity or a new level of authenticity, you sort of realize that what you thought was real before yeah. is not so I can accept that. But there's a part of it that feels like everything before that was sort of a lie. There's a part of it that feels like this is a lie, too. You know, like going for this organic sound, this stripped down image, it's still just as calculated as anything else that came before well, it. I think one reason personally why I'm so interested in, in Gaga is that she first what she achieved commercially, commercially is, is massive. It's a level that's rarely seen. And also, I'm about the same age as she is. Yeah. You know, I'm born in June 85. She's born in March. 86 yeah and to have seen her rise and and the themes that she's interested in and and fame and how she like created that world and but 
you know, she sold like over what 50 million records it's, by now. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. And just to watch that is, is it personally, I found it really impressive. But to in the documentary, be in the studio and be with her and be, you know, the simple things like, okay, we need to record this vocal take, we need to write this song, we need to like all of these things with Mark Ronson. That's what I liked. I yeah, was like, wow, like you still need to make the record, right? But I feel like ultimately. The the narrative, if there, I mean, there's not really a narrative, but I think that one of the most important, you know, facets of the documentary is this idea of pain. Yeah. You know, she's in this constant physical pain, and it's very vague. You know, I mean, there are these moments that are what people seem to think are very revealing and very honest. You know, you see her at the doctor, you see her, you know, being massaged and getting her body taken care of, but it all sort of remains very vague. And well, she talks about that hip. Uh, yeah, there's incident. this hip injury that happened. Well, she fell on stage a few years ago wearing heels because, of course, we know that you know her. I mean, I don't want uh, who am I to to, to question? Yeah, that would be the criticism. What, who are her, you? What do you know about chronic pain? And exactly, what do you know about fibromyalgia. I, I know that Paula Abdul yeah. thinks she was in a plane crash, <laughs> and that's been the source of her insanity. But I just worry for Gaga because I think that there's this like there's this holding on to this idea of an injury that should be healed by now, mm-hmm. you know, but it's not. She's in this constant pain. And I I don't know. There's it, it brings up this very interesting relationship between psychology and the mental and its relationship to the physical, you know, and. I'm just ultimately, I'm just worried about her. You want her to do well. I want her to do well because she is this magical, special being, but she is not taking good care of herself. Um, and she is just in this constant torture, you know, like well, this constant is, she, she prisoner is, of all of this. She is a human ATM for the touring industry. That's I know. what she is. And she knows it and she's very talented, but she loves the adrenaline. She. She might be, you know, addicted to touring in a way. She might, you know, getting to the fans is something that she loves. But, you know, at one point, do you need to... But at what cost? Because if she keeps going like this, like, she's going to be the new Liza Minnelli. Like, she's going to be sort of People on her own planet. context. What, what do you mean she would be the new Liza? Well, because Liza, Liza reminds me, like, young Liza reminds me a lot of Lady Gaga. Just fiercely talented. Mm-hmm. But also just pushing herself too far and not taking good care of herself. So just being reckless in all this. Like, when you're outperforming every single night in this massively physical show, like, you can't be out partying all night after, you know, like... You have to take care of yourself, and Gaga doesn't know how to do that. And now she's canceled. You know the Montreal show, obviously. We yeah, know that. I canceled, and like postponed the European, the European leg. Yeah. Like this is all a mess, and I think that you know her body is crying out for her to stop mm-hmm. and to take a real break. She always says she takes a break, but she never has really. actually taken yeah. a break. But she needs to, you know, and. I think she needs to have some kind of boundary. Like that's the other thing too. Like you see this intense relationship with her fans, and there's a part of it that's beautiful. But she's such an empath, and she's taking on all yeah. of their pain, and she feels this responsibility to take care of them. But you can't do that for millions of people. Mm-hmm. Um, she just wants to. I don't know. I, and even if people are not that interested in Gaga, it's it's a good documentary because you really feel that you're in her bubble. Yeah, and you know, like she literally has a house with a Pacific view in, I think it's Malibu, and she has a penthouse with a view on Central Park. Yeah. How crazy is that? And then you're in those environments, and then you hear the sounds, and then you also hear the sounds in the studio, in the car, 
where she's like walking on the street and they're fans. Like, you know, yeah. like all of this, like for me, the sound design was extremely it's really intense. Yeah, it was really intense. Well, she's living a very extreme life. And clearly there's a part of her that loves her and wants that and wants more of that. But there's this other part of her that needs to take a step away from it if she wants to have a real life. She talks about the way that her personal life constantly falls apart. The more every milestone in her career has been met with this heartbreak or the loss of someone close to her. And I don't, she's going to have to find a balance mm-hmm. <laughs> like still, everyone. But the, the movie is still building her mythology. Yeah, absolutely. Know, and still is another block in the Gaga mythology. And I think that, you know, she started off wanting to be an actress and I think that she's a really good actress. Yeah. And I think sometimes she even fools herself. Like I, there's a lot of times where I don't even think she's very clear on what's real, what she actually really wants from her life. Uh, but I think that she needs to give herself the time and space to or figure it out. Or she's not someone who can know easily. Yeah. Yeah. But, oh, good. But I love her. <laughs> I will always love her, you yeah. know. Um, she's a, a, a very special being, like we've said. And yeah, I hope oh, she gets it together. Hopefully she comes back to Montreal with the Joanne. Yeah. Is that the Joanne Ball? Is that how it's called? No, I think it's just called <laughs> Joanne World Tour. She oh, needs to right. come up with better names for her tours. Shana, today on the show, we've got uh, a really inspiring lineup. Uh, we have a conversation with Nantali Ndongo. Yeah, which is so exciting. And... Sandra Bernhard, my hero and friend, is on the show, which is amazing. And we're going to get things started um, with a live performance from one of my favorite comedians. Her name is Nancy Webb. She also filmed a special with The Brunch Club, and we have an excerpt of that. Nancy is the coolest girl I know. She is. And I'm so jealous every time I see her on stage because not only is she gorgeous, but she's cool and brilliant. So smart. Let's listen. Um, I do want to tell you a story about something that a guy said to me once that I uh, haven't been able to stop thinking about since. Um, uh, I was at a show. uh, I was performing on a show, and this guy that I used to know came up to me afterwards, and um, he... This is the kind of guy who would have, like leather-scented candles, okay? Uh, maybe he would have, like, um, like an open issue of Monocle on the coffee table, unread. Unread. Um, and he came out to me after the show, and he said, uh, I just want to let you know that... I think you're doing a really great job, and I really respect you. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, thank you so much. And then he interrupted me. <laughs> and he said, and I'm only going to say it once. <laughs> And it's not, like, my read on that is that, like, it's not that I didn't deserve to hear it more than once. It's that in the past, he has had trouble limiting the amount of times that he tells women that he respects them. So, um, 
maybe in the past, you know, he'd gone up to a woman that he knows and he had said, uh, hey, I just want to let you know uh, real quick that uh, I respect you. And, uh, yeah, I'm only going to say it once. <sighs> Nope, I'm going to say it again. I respect you so much. I really respect you, and I just want you to know it. And it's really actually hard for me to stop saying it uh, once I've started. I respect you, and uh, that's it. That's all I can do. And, you know, it is problematic because women have an unquenchable thirst for respect. <laughs> This morning, Chana, you called someone who's very, very dear to your heart. Yes, my hero, comedy hero and friend, Sandra Bernhard. And for anyone who doesn't know, first of all, shame on you. Um, because Sandra is this major pop culture icon, comedian, most known for starring in The King of Comedy with Robert De Niro, directed by Martin Scorsese, and being pals with Madonna in the late 80s, early 90s, her infamous Will and Grace episode. I feel like Sandra is just this, like, touchstone. You know, she's, like, the most dependable entertainer. She's always there for us. Without her, we're nothing. <laughs> I'm certainly nothing without her. Um, and you started performing after watching her tape specials and then you saw her live yeah i mean i've always i was always fascinated by her but then when i really started going deep into her work it was just transformative and it was this major epiphany and i went down to meet her at joe's pub a couple of years ago and we just had this instant connection and how crazy that i get to be friends like you, you know, get you get to say things to your mentor you yeah, get, yeah it's she's wonderful and always so supportive and she just blows my mind and even though we're friends now I will always be a fan Good morning Sandra Good morning How are you? Good, how are you? Good, thank you so much for taking this call Of course <laughs> So what's on your mind this morning? Uh, what's on my mind? Um so much is on my mind, the state of the world, um, trying to put my new show together, Sandemonium. I just saw the Instagram post that you made last night. The poster looks amazing. Well, thank you. I mean, I didn't put it together. That's for damn sure. I have absolutely no skills whatsoever in the world of graphics. <laughs> but the picture is stunning. Thank you, baby. So how this is going to be like how many years now at Joe's Pub? I have no idea. <laughs> it's crazy. I, I've really stopped trying to keep track of it. You know, it's just sort of like a juggernaut. I know. I don't know how you do it every year, a brand new show. I don't either, but I'm sitting here like, you know, trying to come up with, you know, the perfect opening song. I think I have all the, pretty much all the other songs together. It's opening songs are the hardest thing. I remember the want... first time that I saw you, you opened with Stony End. Yeah, okay. Well, that wasn't that long ago. Sony End was probably like... It was like already six years ago. Oh, my God. I don't even know. Which is so that. crazy. I remember that, like, because, I mean, obviously, I go see you at Joe's Pub every year. Um, but oh, I remember that first year. Down. Yeah, I hope that I can make it this year. I think that I, I mean, I need to be there. Well, you better be here. I can't miss out. I need to know. I need to, I need to have you wrap up the year for me. Yeah, exactly. 
But I remember the first time that I came down and I was traveling like in the midst of this like insane snowstorm. And I got to Joe's pub with like barely a few minutes to spare. I was so worried about missing the show. And and then I went upstairs and you were just sitting at the merch table and my heart just like dropped to the floor. And you were just so amazing to me that night. I remember you dedicated um, Joni Mitchell's River at the end of the night to me. Yeah. Do you remember that? Of course. <laughs> it's so crazy that that was like six years ago. Well, unlike most people, I'm not usually like on drugs. <laughs> well, <laughs> so I remember things more than most people. Yeah, but we were just talking about the Lady Gaga documentary earlier and oh, sort of... Five, five two. Yeah, five foot two. I watched it yet. How is it? Uh, it's great. I'm excited for you to see it. But I think it's so interesting because you see Lady Gaga, you know, who's just like 30 years old, and she's just in such bad shape. Why is she in such bad shape? Is my question. I don't know. I think she's just she doesn't have boundaries. She doesn't know how to take care of herself. She just wants to keep giving, giving, giving. But is it that, or is it that she just is so used to having, you know, having attention now that she can't stop? I feel like a lot of people in this business, I mean, just keep doing it because they're just addicted to the attention. I mean, I, is, is it really? Is it really about the giving? I don't know. I find that I think if somebody's really able to give, 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 they also know when to stop. That's a problem. I think. I think it's, it's, it's form of addiction i think so too and i mean you know she's been pretty open about her struggles with addiction but i feel like that's what really sets you apart in the industry it's like what is lady gaga addicted to i don't like i mean she's had her drug and alcohol addiction problems and? yeah jesus I, I i i didn't i didn't even, i was sort of being i was generalizing right I Gaga actually had any yeah she's been pretty open about the ups and downs with that but yeah. um I feel like, remember in, I think it was in your show, I'm Still Here, Damn It, when you spoke about your, like, gold 91 Acura and how yeah. you kept it in, like, mint condition for yeah. who knows how many years. Yeah, well, I bought it in um, 91, and I finally gave it to my friend, um, Dot Marie Jones, then girlfriend, like, in probably 2000 and, like, seven or eight. Wow. I feel like Sarah, that's. Sarah and I used to joke. We used to say there was this like um, Goodwill out in the valley in LA. It was just say like, you know you could drop your car there and just leave it. <laughs> so one day we just pulled up and we said, "Should we just do it? Should we just leave it now and, and walk away?" That but, is so but, funny. Um, but I feel like that car is like such a, a metaphor for for you and your approach. Like you keep yourself in like such good shape. You take such good care of yourself. I don't feel like you've ever had that. Like, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to speak for you, but I feel like no, especially in comparison to Lady Gaga. Trust like, me, trust me, I have never had a problem with anything other I, than day to day, you know, it's not a struggle. Isn't even the word. I don't struggle with anything. I deal with shit like everybody, but I don't struggle and I've never needed to like find an escape from it. My escape is, you know, art and, and other people, you know, work and entertainment. And, you know, now, of course, being a mother, you know, a 19 year old, you know, the, all the years I've been a mother and in a relationship and my own, my family. I mean, I escape into things that are fun. I mean, who wants to escape into things that are negative and, make you wake up feeling like like shit the next day. I could not agree more. Ugh, I, I don't I just don't get it. 
I don't I mean, get it either. That kind of like self-destructiveness. I had like a little bit of acid reflux last night. And I took a couple of um, generic Zantac, and I, I and I laid back down. And I thought I poisoned myself. I thought I was going to like wretch. It was I said, what did I even do that for? I don't need this. And now, of course, today I'm getting it all out of my system. I'm gonna, after I talk to you, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to wet it out because I can't even stand pharmaceuticals for like specific things, and sometimes you have to take. So I'm like, I'm like, I'm very, very, very anti-pharmaceutical. So naturally, I'd be anti anytime. Right. I feel you. Well, thank you so much, Sandra, for taking this call. I just adore you more than anything and anyone. Well, I adore you, baby. You are forever my favorite person and entertainer and just everything. I love you so much. Well, this was, um, we, we just scratched the surface. We have to do this again longer and more often. I know. I would really love that. And I'm so excited for a new show. And good luck putting it together. And have a blast in Sandyland today. Thank you, honey. Keep me posted, please. I will. Love you. Love you, honey. Have a beautiful day. You too. Bye, sweetheart. Bye. Today on the podcast, the featured guest is one of my favorite Montrealers. Her name is Nantali Indongo. She's a female MC singer, uh, part of Nomadic Massive, which is this groundbreaking hip-hop collective here in Montreal. And she's also a CBC broadcaster. Can you... I mean, she is so talented and she's also so graceful and smart and just a beam of light. I think if we could all be a little bit more like her, we might make it through this moment. So let's listen to this interview with Nantali. Welcome to Chosen Family. Thank you for having me. Nice to, to have you both meet. Yeah, I'm so happy. I'm so excited. I am too, and I had no idea that Thomas felt this way about me. So I feel. Oh, well, just take like it in. Blushing. So <laughs> one one thing about you. So you work at the CBC, but you're also an MC and singer, and yeah. that story because I was doing a bit more research because I've met you only in recent years, yeah. and how you started as a backup singer in that yeah. hip hop band. <laughs> It was very accidental. I had uh, no intention to be a performer. I think as a child, I probably was uh, a very much a performer. And I studied music as a child and played the piano, played the trombone. But um, my parents are from the Caribbean, immigrants to Quebec. They've been here for a 50, almost 60 years. But the idea of going into the arts as a professional thing was uh, not an option, unless it was obvious that I was some sort of genius. It wasn't <laughs> going to happen. So I kind of put that that notion behind me very soon in life. But I was always attracted to the arts and the hip-hop community for sure, hip-hop culture. I grew up in that, you know, sort of 80s uh, era, 90s era of hip-hop. So when I ended up in uh, Nomadic Massive, it was really accidental. I was friends with people in the band. It was 2005, um, and I just happened to be humming harmonies. <laughs> yeah. It's literally a, the storyline of that... a movie, like the girl in the back humming the the, ar- the harmonies, and then the band's it's like very glitter, it yeah. w- right? It's yeah, very yeah, Mariah yeah. Glitter. I should be wearing like yeah. this like little uh, shawl or something, and I'm all demure, and then all of a sudden I break yeah. up. Um, yeah, it was something like that. Uh, and so they said to me, um, "Oh my gosh, could you do that on stage in a show?" And I thought, "What? No way!" And 
14 years later. You're still doing it. Yeah. You're still doing it. I remember yeah. I saw an interview. You have, you have this necklace. It says, I am black, black girl. girl. Yeah. And in this era of identity politics, like how do you... Because it must be so interesting for someone like you who's been involved in identity politics and sort of doing community work mm-hmm. uh, with youth here in Montreal, like looking at this recent wave of people getting aware of who they are. Yeah. Do you... How do you find that? I'm so excited by this. I am because in my era of being a young, like teenager or young adult, and those questions, we were trying to address those questions. um, The platforms weren't necessarily accessible to mm. to have that expression and i met a young man this weekend on my show on C- i host a show called the bridge, the bridge. on CBC. it just started it just started yeah. I, it used to be a different kind of show at the same same time slot but we've been working on a different format and so i had a guest in a, an artist a visual artist from toronto and he's 30 and he's a part of a movement called the black speculative arts movement and it's all about um bringing together black Uh, artists in North America, and he's working on the Canadian, basically the Canadian leg, uh, who are thinking about black identity in the future and illustrating that in their artwork, be it visual arts or whatever form. And he said something to me about his generation. He says, I think we're just more audacious right now. Mm. And I was asked thinking about that because Lido Pimienta had just mm-hmm. won the Polaris and she was really bold and blazing on stage um, in front of this huge yeah. industry. And I'm thinking, this is amazing that young people, people of color, people who for whatever reason have felt marginalized, feel like they can take ownership and agency. My generation, sometimes we managed to do it, sometimes we didn't, but I find the numbers now mm. are But great. you've been in the trenches. I've been in the trenches. In the <laughs> trenches, you know, meeting with, like, for over a decade. Yeah. For, like, almost 20 years. Yeah, like, yeah. meeting with, uh, with, like, people, like, kids in school. Yes. Uh, yeah. Doing work with Nomadic Massive. Absolutely. Um, I I have to shout out my homegirl, Marise Le Gagneur. She's, yeah. uh, she's a um, Quebecoise filmmaker of Haitian origins. And by luck, she, she asked me to work with her on a project that was all about demystifying stereotypes around mm-hmm. hip-hop culture. And she was determined to bring this into the classroom, not like an after-school program or something. And we really wanted to make it about almost history and media and understanding how hip-hop culture fits into the story of hip-hop. How does that fit into the bigger story of where we are in life and how did we get there? Do you feel today that we speak about it more than only in February for Black History Month? Uh, Or it's still very, you know, like... It's yeah. going to be that day, and then yeah. Well, so that was something that we pushed against when we started hip hop. Of course, hip hop no pop, or in French, it was called hip hop sans la pop when we started in two thousand and seven. Um, going into the, the first school we went to was uh, Joseph François Perrault yeah. in uh, Saint Michel. Yeah, and we made a point of trying to make sure that wherever, whenever we brought that project, which was four workshops over the course of a month, and we wanted to get to as many students as possible, and we wanted to be in the classroom we made sure it happened not in February. Mm-hmm. And of course, we ran up on some weird circumstances. They were like, where are your costumes? Why are you not dancing? <laughs> oh God, you know, right. and and where's your you know hat backwards and your big gold chin? And that's not what our project was yeah. about at all. It was about critical thinking. Um, but 
people felt a need for it and kept calling us and we kept going. And then we kept we went to other places with it outside of Montreal, outside of Quebec and different contexts. So, yeah, as it's a, been great. As a guy, I know I don't want to speak for Jonah, but as like women in comedy mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. always, always, always asked the same old tiring questions yeah. Like, yeah, like what is it like <laughs> <laughs> and i was yeah. i'm sure the same same thing yeah. with women in music and women in hip-hop in hip-hop yeah. you know my question is what do we do to, to for people to stop asking those questions like to just move forward do mm. we stop answering do we yeah Um, I think it's like a because it's embarrassing for mostly for the people who ask at this I point. I think it's a two way it's a two way street, right? We we also need to like if people feel they have um, something to say about being a woman in said uh, sort of male dominated space. I think let's say for, for sure, you in hip hop, but for me in hip hop, you know, I I think people stopped asking me that question because very early on. I remember because I remember being on a panel at Pop Montreal and I was with Eternia, Miriam Sassy, who's also in Nomadic, and uh, Mishimi, uh, who's like Canadian legend yeah. in hip hop. And our, myself and Miriam, our answers were w- probably super unexpected. This was like 2008. Uh, it'd been about three years that we were in the band. And I just said, well, we're really lucky that we've been, we're surrounded Uh, by brothers yeah. who, who check, feels they like check that. for us. It really feels and like so that. And so it's like um, the guys in our group, uh, they we write our own lyrics and they rap our lyrics with us as the same way that you would back up yeah. another person in the group. Um, they're always putting us... To, we're not last. Like in the 80s and in the 90s, I felt like some women who were affiliated to a crew, let's say a hip-hop crew, and they were MCs, it was like, dun da and here she is! You know? <laughs> right. And then all of a sudden this female MC comes out and she's like our... our She's like our, I don't know, our dog or right, our, yeah. our special juju or something. Yeah. I don't know. And it was so <laughs> bizarre when I think about that. And I'm like, she got better lyrics than all of y'all, you know? Yeah. So I, so for me personally, of course, there are things that, that can happen. But the, the context that Nomadic operates in, uh, rarely are we faced with any kind of misogyny or sexism because the hip hop that we make is not about that. So right. the people who gravitate to us are not about that. And if ever it happens that way. We just yeah. know how to deal with it. <laughs> Let's talk about Nomadic Massive because you've got you guys have been trailblazers on so many levels. Thank you. So many levels. Uh, rapping with live instruments was yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, the use of many languages yes. is another. I want to talk about the themes because yes. you talked about colonial power before it was trendy. Because now it's really it's kind of trendy to talk about colonial power so. in a way in a, yeah. in a weird internet yeah yeah viral way which is a good thing that it's, it's becoming good, you know of course a, a, one of the four like one of the forefront discussions mm-hmm. yeah you know yeah But you guys been on it for for sure since the and beginning. i mean we have to be straight up we're old you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, like we're uh, rather we're older because i don't want to yeah. offend anybody yeah. in the group yeah. who might feel like we're just talking about that um but i'm like one of the oldest people in the group okay. and uh we're of a particular most of us have a particular um aesthetic when it came to hip-hop culture I was growing up in Montreal, in Cote-de-Neige, in the 80s, in the early 90s, when um, X-Clan was a really important band in hip-hop culture. Public Enemy was really important. And they were already talking mm-hmm. about that kind of yeah. stuff in the 80s and 90s. So those things, re- those themes and those kinds of bands, even Tribe Called, 
uh, Quest and De La Soul, those bands really informed the kind of hip hop that I was attracted to and what I was thinking about. Um, it also has a lot to do with my own family background and those topics, my relationship with those topics. So for me to talk about anything else just would feel unnatural to me. Yeah. Um, and I think to many of the people in the group, because even though we're this multi, um, you know, we're... The, Visually, people would say, oh, there's like two white guys in that group and one Latino guy and and like three black people and, and this How Arab many girl. are you? You're- well, we are. We, <laughs> the original, original probably were um, about eight people who started that crew. DJ Static from We It's Funk. really a chosen family. That's yeah, yeah, what, yeah. That, that was my reasoning behind yeah, wanting yeah. to talk to you. Yes, yeah. it really was a tribe. And now some people have shifted out uh, with... As we said, we're older, so life changes. <laughs> and um, so now we've got like a core six who, okay. who were there since like 2004, 2005. But we all have a story of displacement linked to us. Yeah. And because of that story, um, be it our parents were displaced or we were literally displaced or we felt displaced even wherever we were being raised, as would be my story, mm. Um that that talking about those types of heavy topics just were normal for us. What what is your story of displacement? Yeah, yeah what's my story of displacement? Um, I grew up in in Cote d'Ivoire, and um, my mother came to Canada in nineteen um, nineteen fifty nine, and she came from the Caribbean, from Saint Vincent and the Grenadines. My father was already in the United States and had come here to go to school. And they grew up in an era in the Caribbean where, the, one, their countries were were still colonies under British rule. And so there were certain things about the education system that they were accustomed to by the time they got to Canada. Montreal was also shifting. Quebec was also shifting at that point mm-hmm. um, as well. But the English were still very dominant here. So in my mind, in my mother's mind, in terms of education, I had to get a certain quality of education and she wanted to make sure she'd find it in the right schools. The neighborhood school was a great school, um, but what my mother witnessed, she was worried that because it was predominantly black, uh, like black students and children of color of immigrants, um, she was worried that we were going to get shortchanged mm. at that school. And around that time in the 80s, people start to witness as well, like, what's up with all these black boys going to special ed? Like, mm-hmm. how come all of a sudden all these young black boys are have some issue with learning? It looked like pe- that people were experiencing some form of institutional racism. Right. So my mother sent me to school in Westmount at Roslyn right. Elementary yeah. School. And that was already a bizarre situation to grow up in because all of my friends lived in the neighborhood. I lived across the street from the neighborhood school. I went to day camp. I was very much a part of the English black community in Cote d'Ivoire. We went to church on Cote St. Catherine Street. And then I didn't end up going to school with all my friends. Mm. And we were about... Throughout the five, six years that I was at Roslyn, we were maybe five black kids mm. in the French immersion program. So that displacement was almost a daily thing for me yeah. because I didn't always see, I didn't always see the people that I knew. And it wasn't just about race; it was also about socioeconomics. It was also I lived in a in a community with um, Southeast Asian pe- people, uh, Vietnamese people, and so are we Moroccans. talking about the same areas, Sugar Sammy, basically? Exactly, same yeah. sort of. Yeah, multicultural yeah. Uh, Diverse, early 90s yeah, yeah. and yeah. and and more people were second generation like mm-hmm. more of us were our children our parents had all immigrated here and yet in westmount 
That were people. These are people who had been there. Right. Their families have been there for a real long so time. So many identities. So there's the yeah. Montreal identity for yes. you. There's the Caribbean identity. Yeah. There's the Canadian identity. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think there's about it that like? Do you think about it that separately? Some, are you how conscious of you? I'm how so conscious are you of all those, of these identities? Um, it took me. I think at this point, at where I'm at in my life, I'm I'm also a mom. Um, I, at this point in my life, I'm thinking less about those mm-hmm. identities, but I certainly have. Um, it's I'm. Um, it's always there for me because in the moments where I feel like, oh, I'm not really connecting. Um, like, are, are are you connecting to the Quebecois identity, for example? Well, it's it's sort of. It depends on where I am. Yeah. I went to school in Ontario just before mm-hmm. going to a university in Ontario, and a funny experience happened. I was. Um, I was in the cafeteria and it was before the the school day was going to start and they sing the national anthem at this high school. Oh, Canada. Oh, Canada. (laughs) And they pray before the day starts. That's not a Quebec. At all. And so I was sitting down. I was just like, okay, well, this is what they do. And people were offended and I just thought. Oh, wow. And the other time that I saw that was also when I was in university. I was at the University of Ottawa. Um, Canada. I ended up spending Canada Day in Ottawa I had never experienced Canada Day like that. Right. It was like I was like, "What? This this is not." So you Texas. felt more Quebec. I felt more Quebec in those yeah. moments, right? right? Okay. Um, then uh, when I'm here, um, yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky when yeah. I'm here because so much of my identity is about being a Black Canadian person. Yeah. I feel like I spend a lot of time reflecting on that because I feel like there's a lot of work to be done yeah. around that for more people how is that it's going to sound very basic but go ahead how is that identity different from black american for african-american uh, for african-american well so those of us who are there are people who are black canadians who's who have a direct lineage to black americans who were slaves who came up to canada and mm-hmm. escaped slavery at some point and landed in nova scotia new brunswick in parts of montreal um some people further further west, Windsor, Chatham, and then even further west in into the prairie provinces. But then a big chunk of people who are considered Black Canadian or African Canadian, I think that's like the UN term, um, a big chunk of people are people who came here as a result of immigration. Mm-hmm. And then that gets broken down right. into waves, right? Like wh- yeah. how, which community came at what time from what And in Montreal, the Haitian community is so important. It's such important. a big community yeah. that, you know, so... Uh, there's that distinction to be made because my family came here from the Caribbean already with a sense, a very strong sense of self. Right. Um, and if you often, if you were to speak to Caribbean people of a certain generation, um, like my parents' generation, um, 60 plus, they often say, I didn't know I was black until I came mm. here because I'm juxtaposed. And the Caribbean is extremely mixed. There are white people in the Caribbean, Asian people, all kinds. But the the idea of like being othered, they didn't realize um, that that was, you know, they didn't notice that until yeah. they came here. And that's going to for sure in, um, inform how their children understand their right. identities, right? Um, and so there's that distinction as well. The black Americans have... a they have a story around slavery that has been documented um, and sort of addressed and discussed and plays a huge part in 
how they how they operate in the United States, yeah. how they exist in the United States, how the United States runs their government, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It's all linked to that story. Whereas um, it's different for black Canadians, although there are some definitely in terms of politics and governance and, and even in the law. I found this out in a series I did at CBC called yeah. Breaking the Code, where we learned about um, color laws within mm. the legal system in Canada. In Canada. But yeah. that stuff is not so readily accessible. That's right? the thing. We, we we seem to like to think that Canadians are above what's going on right. in the U.S., yeah. but it's a different kind It totally of, is. Yeah. Well, I, I, um, I read this interview that you had done in the beginning of 2016, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of addressed that. And, you know, I think the, the journalist had asked you, you know, like, do you think that we've sort of made it through? Oh, and... Yeah obviously not but what you had said was it's you know racism might not be as in our face or as aggressive as it once was but it's always there it has always been there and it is still there and that was before shit really hit the fan and now you know speaking about this moment where it wasn't in your face and now everything is just like coming out how has that affected your life just personally mm. and professionally in the work like, that you do but trying to do, don't you think that like things really hit the fan for just white people it's been you know you right. know what i mean mm. like i feel i feel right. for 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 african americans and probably for right. for african canadians it's, it's yeah. well, do you, you know, see a just, difference in yeah. the in in people's attitudes towards you and what you do yeah. before DT and yeah. post DT. <laughs> there's DT and then there's Black Lives Matter yeah, also a few exactly. years ago. Oh, there's a great, great. I mean, it's, it's like we have to talk about it, but like, Absolutely. how do you find your way into it? It's such an yeah. overwhelming topic. Yeah, yeah, but because yeah. you've um, moderated a lot of panels about racial diversity in Canada, yeah. about First Nations in Canada. Yeah, yeah. So you you have your own experience, but you yeah. have also the experience of as a broadcaster, yeah. like listening to people giving people a chance to speak Speak. so how do you position yourself in all of this um well i think i think the the work around diversity and inclusion and racism um which has it has a lot to do with skin color but that's not what racism Mm -hmm. is it's about power and control right and so Mm -hmm. we're using this notion of skin color to try and control said group Mm -hmm. um there's there's always going to be work around that uh, because we're not, I think, we haven't yet gotten to the crux of where is this actually really coming from? And in some ways, it's gonna, it's it's too far back for people to right. have to, to, to like wade through, right? Yeah. But I think it also has a lot to do with are we actually addressing our own challenges and our discomforts, which is what I think you're talk, you're referring to Real Talk on Race, which was um, a series that I produced at CBC, where we really were trying to get everyone engaged, anyone, even the journalists and the reporters and, and and, and our guests to try to get at sort of how does how are we living race? I remember we really wanted to have a conversation about what does it mean to be white right now and how mm. does that feel? And that was a hard thing to try to get off the ground because right. that meant like some white people would have to really be like, actually, I'm not sure. Or actually, yeah, I hate it right now, which are things that I mm-hmm. heard mm-hmm. Um, that people did say but didn't necessarily feel comfortable bring it forward. Right. Uh, for myself, um, I have to say that 
it's it's great to see that more people are in tune to some of the 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 challenges and the issues and the frustrations that people of color have been expressing. Yeah. Uh, it's of course the the more people, the better. Um, and I just hope that people who are engaging in that work, who are sort of as we say, maybe are getting woke right, right. now, can turn back and say to the people who were prior to them talking about this can turn back and say like you know what um we need to include you here we need to hear your expertise and i think that's a big um thing that we need to we're trying to achieve here in canada as well is that it starts with indigenous people here yeah. and first nations people here so we need to turn to them for their wisdom around how are they dealing how are they working what do they need to understand how the rest of us who may feel marginalized um can get through it as well right because the challenge, in a way, uh, you know, I'm I'm a white guy, but I'm a queer guy, mm-hmm. you know, and and in a way, it's like, how do we keep what's different about us and sort of bring it all together and all the perspectives and listen to each other? And but it's it's hard. It's it not is. easy. Yeah. yeah. And and we've seen it with the in the American election with white women, yeah. Uh, yeah. mostly going for for DT. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that the DT is like what we say. Well, I mean, I just like I really I don't know. There was there's part of me that wants chosen family <laughs> and sort of everything that I do creatively to sort of be a refuge from him. Mm. Because it's just... I wanted to talk about Melania, but Trump I know, I was like, it. no, we can't. And you still found a way to bring her out. But, um, but I hear you. It's not to ignore what's happening, because I think he's I just... totally hear you. He's not... I mean, he's not the be-all, end-all of the problem. I just think we don't need... We need to talk about the real issues and what's yeah. happening, but we don't. We can do that without, without talking there, about yeah. him. There's a line yeah. in, in the nomadic, the last nomadic massive record. Yeah. I think I'm it's like, the, oh world, the world is a trickery. Oh. Or something like that, and the, oh. and one of the first songs, the yeah. word trickery really trickery. was yeah. like it's is that I, that I think that's I think that might be Miriam's verse in Pan Am. Yeah, that's I it. I think so. Yeah, and that word, it's trickery. Trickery. It just yeah. resonated. It just uh-huh. it's all it's a trickery. All, yeah. It is well, kind of complicated, right? It is complicated. <laughs> it's, it's smoke. It's it's sort of smoke and screens. Right. And um, but, but how do many... you, for example, with you, how do you raise a child yeah. in this? Oh man, oh, how do you God, like? That's a good question. You... <laughs> uh, with a lot of love, yeah, a lot of love that creates confidence, and I am grateful that I've always been surrounded by not just in my family. Um, my immediate family, but I've always been surrounded by people who believe in speaking up, mm-hmm. um, speaking up, speaking out, but not necessarily with um, a notion of self-righteousness or even uh, over aggression, just about saying human to human, you know what? That's not cool. Whatever it is. Yeah. Whatever the context is, mm-hmm. you know? And so I... That takes courage. It does yeah. take courage. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess I've just... I have to say that I've been fortunate to just have that in my lineage and in my circle mm. all the time. Yeah. So that I trust that we can pass that message on to, right. our, to our son and... And that he can just sort of operate in the same vein. I, I cannot say that I'm not worried about yeah. raising a black boy um, or a black child or any if any child who would end up feeling marginalized for some reason. Yeah. You worry about that as a parent because you don't want your, your child to be ostracized for any reason. Yeah. But you do want your child to know how to 
um, speak up and speak out and stand up for themselves and or at least share that with you so you could advocate. Right. Well, speaking of children, like you mentioned earlier, that question of, you know, where does this hatred come from? Like, where does prejudice and bigotry come mm-hmm. from? And it goes back a long way. Mm-hmm. But there's a part of me that, you know, because people, especially white people, love to try to find ways to justify mm-hmm. the existence, the, the, you know, the survival of racism and mm-hmm. bigotry mm-hmm. Um, for all marginalized people. And I find that kind of rhetoric always angers me because I would like to believe that on some level, we're born with the knowledge of love and acceptance, you know, and you work with kids and you have a child. Do you see that? Like, do you think that that's the knowledge of power? Yeah. I've like power has never interested me. Well, I don't know. Like, <laughs> so, so that's like, I, that I love the way you set up that question because I've see both love and power. Um, and they both kick in very early. You can you feel as a parent that your child loves you just from every single moment that they smile at you, touch you, hold you, whatever. And then you also see when your child is vying for power with you or with another child. Um, and that's that sort of animal instinct that as as human species we sort of are mm. supposed to like elevate beyond that and learn and train and and study and be uh more sophisticated than like let me grab that right. from you i got power or like let me push you out of the way right. cuz i want to get somewhere that's a real thing that children do right. and we have the responsibility to teach them why not to do that? Yeah. And the people who struggle with that as adults maybe struggled with it right. as a child. But there's just so many adults struggling with mm. that that it's crazy. Well, like the idea that an adult can can have that, you know, survival instinct kick in just because they think someone of some kind of minority is getting what they think they should well, have. It's about think, feeling th- yeah, feeling I, threatened is a real yeah. human condition. I guess there's sure. a part of it that just I just will never be able well, to some, wrap my some, head around. Some people would think that more equality means taking something away from them. Right. Yeah. And I think it's Whereas, just what we're dealing with is people, as long as they understand it this way, uh, they, that needs yeah, to change. Yeah, and, and we just, we need to spend a lot of time unpacking. Yeah. Um, I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine. He's a comedian um, and educator, Habib Siam. Yeah. And he is... I'm going to out you right now, Habib. He <laughs> loves uh, Bomani Jones, who yeah. is a sportscaster. Like, he's yeah. obsessed. Like, he sent me a list of how they are identical, yeah. right? They yeah. don't even yeah. know each other, yeah. but they're yeah. identical. That's his twin. Um, and he he sent me this podcast, this conversation, uh, where Bomani was talking about there is uh, this is just after the Charlottesville incidents and LeBron James had spoken out and people were using the language of shaming you know mm-hmm. and and he said well shaming doesn't work you know the idea of shaming just doesn't yeah. work uh and what is the point of shaming people when they're they're never going to respond to that yeah. because you risk actually building a lot of animosity and anger yeah and i believe it's about unpacking things uh, we were in classrooms with hip-hop no pop where to the question uh why do you think there was an african tra- slave trade uh, I remember a grade 8 student at a high school in Outremont here in Montreal who said, well, because, you know, Africans uh, always need jobs. And so maybe they wanted to help them. And so, OK, mm. both of you have this wow. surprise yeah. face, right? What shocked you about that answer? I mean, it's not that it's shocking because it's it, it's 
it's mostly that someone would go through the education system thinking that. Right? Yeah. And just this distinction, like they need, they need this, right? Yeah. You know. So my concern was like, hold on a second. We're talking about the 16th, 17th, yeah. 18th century, and you're talking to me about UNICEF commercials. Like right. that made <laughs> yeah. me nervous. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, about yeah. critical thought, and but with regards to the idea, I was like, all right, this is a young mind. This young mind has been imp- has been impressioned, impressioned yeah. by who and by what, by things that she has seen, things that people are telling her or things that people are not telling mm-hmm. her. And so we just had to take the time. I couldn't cut her down. Right. I couldn't say, what kind of stupid answer is that? <laughs> yeah. I had to just say, I understand why you're saying that. Right. But let's just look at what we're talking about. We're talking about a certain era. We've already established certain things about why this, this so business. Maybe we need more patience in the world. We need Mm. So much more patience. Absolutely. Yeah. We do. I feel like you're a very patient person. Because I just get like, I mean, you're I've been thinking about it. I'm not at all. Because I just get like, I'm like, I'm just frustrated and I'm blown yeah. away by people like you who have this composure and this ability to think rationally and take the time to unpack, unpack and to actually, yeah. you know, to spend a, a chunk of your time trying to change the mentality but we didn't talk about your father but it co- yeah. not only from him but yeah, his story his story. my reaction is just always like can we just shut this shit down like it's enough in I, dt go away in my private conversations maybe i yeah. sound like that yeah. no, no i i am i am patient but yeah you were gonna mention because your father mm. would you say that your father was an activist is an activist my father um no um <laughs> it's not that i don't i i so my father was a student at, at Concordia in 1968. Concordia was called Sir George Williams at that time. And my father was a student trying to get to med school. He had been, he's from Pitti Martinique, uh, which is an island that belongs to Grenada. And he had been in the United States um, for a while and then went to school there and came up here to pursue post-secondary education. Uh, and I, I, my mom and my aunts and everybody who was around at that time, uh, when my father took a stance, he took a stance with other students who accused a professor of racism, a teacher that was just systematically failing them and they couldn't understand why um, because these were students who were asked to come here on scholarship. You you can't just get out of the Caribbean in the 1960s and be like, hey, anybody just come. You have to really fight for that. So... um, they took action. They accused this teacher. They expected some sort of investigation by the university. It didn't quite go down that way. It went down the route of a protest that the rest of the student body at Concordia at the time did jump in and support these black students. And for sure, when you see the footage of these big speeches and you see um, interviews, it was, a big deal. it was a big deal. There was a fire on the ninth floor of the hall building on on Mizenov Street, and that time that. Was in the computer room where computers were the size of this <laughs> yeah. room, um, and those computer cards. You know, the, the university lost a lot of money. Tons of questions around who set the fire, how the police had come in. Um, some some people who were you know there to kind of stir the pot. They also infiltrated the scene. So there's tons of questions around that. A documentary came out about it yeah. recently, so that history is out there now. Uh, ninth floor, and. 
I remember my mother growing up throughout my life because I ended up not. Was that story part of your family mythology? Absolutely. Yeah. I didn't grow up with a, for a long time with my dad. Um, my dad had had to leave Canada, and my parents went to Africa for a while, and then came back to North America. But my father couldn't come back here, and my mother made a choice and raised me here instead of New York. So I only spent you know a little bit of time with my father in the end, like a. Not a lot of time. He's still alive, but mm-hmm. we just didn't have that relationship. And my mother and my family were like, they weren't militants. They weren't activists. They just wanted justice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They ju- and so we, we tend to take those labels because so much, so many people, I guess, end up feeling passive or yeah. feeling like they're not really participating in affecting change. And then when people do step out because of what they feel they have to lose um, in all of it, they're like considered activists. And yes, there were, there is, there are things that my father did. And I learned this actually, interestingly, when the film came out where people came to me who were teenagers in like little Burgundy wow. who were black Canadians who said, you know, I remember your father used to come to the Negro Community Center and talk to us and talk to us about racism and civil rights because that was also a time, right? The yeah. 68, yeah. 68, 69, 67, th- there was something going on with university students or student protests all over the world. There's, there was the Luther, war, Martin, Martin Luther, Luther King, King, all that stuff was in the air. And so they were participating in those conversations in Canada too and bringing it to young uh, black Canadians who probably felt like they just they didn't have an opportunity to hear that stuff or think about that stuff or feel ownership around that. So in some ways, I totally understand why why he would be perceived that way. I just don't think that he actually thought of himself in that way. Right. These are just people who were like, I have something to lose here and I'm not going to let somebody else just yeah. throw it away. And you don't like that word for yourself, right? Activist? Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I, I don't. I always wonder. And I, I respect... Because for me, um, some of the people who are, to me, activists um, are 24-7 on that grind Mm. at the front line. And I've been at the front line in different circumstances. And we could always sort of, you know, you can define it how you want. Some people say, well, you're an activist, Tally, because you're going into schools and you're trying to push back. And so I understand that. But I also know people who really risk their lives. And I don't know if I... It, it could be argued that I take that risk with regards to certain things I might say or th- certain things that I want to present, especially in the context of being in the media. Um, but, yeah, I just feel like, no, we all, those of us who are fighting for those things are just people who want justice. And we all should want that. It's about humanity. Right? And, yeah. and, and what do you think is most effective to affect change between hip hop and broadcasting? Oh, man, it's simultaneous. I think we need both. I think we need all things at the same time. Affecting change has to come from all angles. Um, it has to come from, you know, your daily conversations um, with your neighbor who otherwise you wouldn't talk to for whatever reason. Affecting change has to come um, at the very top and and people, somebody at the top saying like, wait a minute, let's take a moment and reflect here. Let's look at ourselves and see what are we doing? What are we? And, and if we don't understand what we're doing, let's look over here and ask these people to join the conversation. Affecting change requires people to, to, to shake it up. 
Yeah. Right. Uh, um, because those moments when people are shaking things up forces the rest of us to ask a question. We're seeing that right now with uh, what's going on in the NFL. Yeah. One person decided mm-hmm. to really shake things up yeah. uh, or I don't even think he knew that he was going right. to shake things up yeah. in the way that he did. But but look at where the conversation yeah. has gone um, as a result of mm-hmm. kneeling down yeah. Uh, yeah. during a, a professional football game, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you for shaking up Chosen Family. Ah, <laughs> so amazing to have you. Me. It was a great conversation. Thank yeah. you so, so much. Thank you. And we'll listen to your show, The Bridge, yes. on the CBC uh, in Quebec every Saturday at 5. 5, five to 6, 88.5 <laughs> yeah. FM Radio 1. Thank you, Nantali. Thank you. Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? So, Thomas, what are you obsessed with this week? What am I obsessed with this week, Trana? Well, one thing is I love um, funny videos online like every human being on the planet. But I love I like funny fashion videos. Yes. And a few weeks ago, I don't know if you saw that one. It was um, produced by W Magazine with Ava Ryan. Uh, she's a seven or eight year old um, lady bossy boss or something. And it was hilarious. And I loved it. And this week, a new it's not with her, but a new funny fashion video came out on Instagram. And a few of those with Mademoiselle Agnes. Uh, it's from a, this Paris company called La 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 Productions. Okay. And she personifies uh, fashion people in Paris, like a seamstress, a trend consultant, a designer, a model agent. And she is so, so, so funny. you got to watch it on Instagram. I will. And it's fashion. It's it's a Paris Fashion Week right now. And a few years ago, I don't know if you remember, but she imitated Trana Wintour trying to get into Anna a show. Wintour. Uh, Anna Wintour. <laughs> I love that you just yeah. got this too confused. <laughs> so she imitated Anna Wintour. I love that video. Trying to get into a show. Uh, I mean, it's easy to impersonate Anna. Beating you know? up people with a baguette and yeah that was pretty funny <laughs> that's awesome what's your obsession Trina? um i am completely obsessed um with cave boy's new single so cave boy is an amazing band um i have to admit that three of the well all three of the members are friends of mine <laughs> but i genuinely completely independently of our friendship adore their music so much it's like this perfect sparkly emotional pop um that has a lot of depth and emotion and it's just the kind of song that that moves you you are such a pisces Jesus. This, yes i live i live through the music i live through it and i really i i really you are just such a pisces. i know i know music is my life and and i really feel like when i listen to cave boy it's the kind of music that i feel literally inside mm-hmm. me like i feel mm-hmm. it through my veins um and they just have they have a new single that stop laughing at me it's real and i think everyone should listen to cave boy and i just i wish them all the success in the world because i think they're doing really amazing work and so we're going to play their new single for you now it's called raconteur thanks everybody for listening thank you we love you and we'll see you and hear you hear from you in two weeks let's do this raconteur cave boy Used to be a better time to tell History will always repeat itself But don't write me off, write me off Just yet, I've seen the dark, I'm not ready for it Used to be 
Chosen Family was recorded live at Defy Center. And we're so lucky to be working with them. They're the best. We're live on Facebook every second Tuesday at 11 Eastern. Follow Defy Center on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And follow us too. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud and iTunes. Give us a five star rating. Don't we deserve it? Thanks to Ghost Love for all the music.、And、thank you for listening, sharing, and laughing. We'll see you soon. You're family now. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.